and about something that confronts every single one of us, and that is death itself, something that all of us contend with, think about to some degree or other. A friend of mine came to church last night, and uh, a very, very good friend of his was suddenly killed in an automobile accident unexpectedly this week. And you know, you don't, you don't think always that every one of us, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how productive or unproductive, no matter how wealthy or not, each one of us are just a heartbeat away from eternity. Just a heartbeat away. This man was on vacation with his family, just driving up in the beautiful northern country of Canada, seeing the beautiful, beautiful countryside, and was killed in a head-on accident. Never expected. In Luke's Gospel this morning, in chapter 16, we want to look at a story that Jesus tells about a rich man and about a man, a poor man, named Lazarus. I want to draw some lessons from that for us and things that I think that that we must think about, though we may not necessarily want to think about. Not too long ago, I officiated at a funeral service of a man who consistently resisted becoming a Christian. It was a very difficult funeral service. Nothing that his... Christian family or friends or even that I myself could say or do was sufficient to break through his shell of self-sufficiency. You see, success and wealth, a significant measure of health, had really insulated him from his need uh, to recognize that he needed Christ, that he needed a Savior in his life even. He was impervious to any efforts on the part of any of us to introduce him to Jesus Christ or to introduce him to the assurance of salvation. He acted like he would live forever. And he did. My concern and the concern of his family was where, with whom, and how? What state is he living forever? And at the funeral, I posed a hypothetical question. It was an open casket funeral, and his remains lay in the box. It was a very somber time, especially for those of us who know Christ and knew his resistance. There were many nice things said about him and fond remembrances, of course. But I posed a hypothetical question. I didn't at all mean to be irreverent, but here was his remains laying in this casket. It was open. Everybody could see. 
let's suppose his name was John. I said, what, what if John could come back? What if John could re-inhabit this body? What if he could sit up in the casket, crawl out, and stand before us? What would he tell us? What would he say? Would he say, it's all true. Everything that my family, everything that my friends, everything that pastor has been telling us and telling me is true. Would he say, there is a heaven, there is a hell. That Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did die for our sins. It's all true. Would he offer us, I said, assurance and comfort? Or would he alarm us? What would he tell us? What if we could hear voices from the dead? What if people could come back? and tell us what's on the other side. What would they tell us? Would we listen? Would we listen? What difference would it make? And again, would some of us be assured? Some of us would say, Oh, yes, I believe and I'm glad to hear. Would some of us be terrified by what we hear from the other side? Pretty significant questions, would you agree? Funerals are wonderful times to call people back to thinking about these things, to recollecting, to causing everybody who is in attendance at that setting to confront their own mortality. The funeral is not for the person who's deceased. The funeral is for those who are left behind. So they consider not only their remembrances and so forth, but also, what about me? What's going to happen to me? Where am I going to go? What what are people going to say about me when I'm in a box? Or my remains, I should say. There are lots and lots of people today interested, concerned, fascinated with death and dying. Um, We hear accounts in fascinating accounts of people who presumably have died and have experienced something and then they've been revived or they've come back from that state and they have a story to tell. Invariably, they're stories of, well, I saw a white light or I was floating above my body. I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit dubious as to those experiences. You know, I think that The devil, very real personification of evil, will trade off a deception to get people complacent. We hear so many testimonies of people who've died and they don't confess Christ at all. But they see this warm, glowing light and they're drawn toward this light and all of a sudden they they come back. and, And their testimony largely is, Oh, it's all okay. I felt peace. It's wonderful. And that's it. And you ask them, well, 
Well, what about your sins? What about your need for forgiveness? What about your relationship with Christ? Oh no, I've already been there. We don't even have to concern yourself with all that. It's so wonderful. Can you see how that that could set people up for a tremendous deception? On this side, we, we speak of the urgency of forgiveness. We speak about eternal punishment and eternal rewards. And yet someone, here's someone who's been on the other side, presumably. And there's been no threat. There's no, been no problem. They have no need for Christ. I would submit to you that that is a demonic deception designed to set people up so that they don't have an urgent need for forgiveness. They don't have to deal with God because on the other side, everything is fine. Well, we're going to look and see a story Jesus tells. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered if any of the people that you have known, because I've wondered this, People that I've known, I have a father who died. I have a youngest sister who died several years ago. And sometimes I've pondered and wondered if, if, they, if they could come back and tell me what's over there. I live my life by faith. I, I trust what the Bible says, that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a God. Jesus is who he says he is. I've staked everything on that. Everything. My whole existence is committed to those principles. But every so often I wonder if they could come back and tell me, tell me what it's like. Every so often I wonder where my dad is. For he was one of these men who was very, very resistant, very self-sufficient. And it was only on his deathbed with his last dying breath that I managed to urge him to say Jesus save me. That's all I have to go on with respect to my dad. I prayed for years. I said, Lord, please don't let my father die without saving him. The thought of him being in, in, in hell for eternity is too depressing a thought. But if he could come back, what would he tell me? my baby sister could come back, what would she tell me? What they'd experienced. See, this is the part of the point of the parable of the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and finds himself in the fires of hell. The beggar Lazarus dies and finds himself in Abraham's bosom by Abraham in paradise. It's a study in contrasts. You see a tremendous contrast in their earthly life and then a tremendous contrast in the afterlife. And they just swap places. Read with me. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple and fine linen expresses the absolute very, very, very best that a person could uh, own and, and wear in terms of clothing in the ancient Near East. Purple was the most expensive kind of clothes. Fine linens. These were not your average, everyday 
uh, sort of clothes that people wore. These were the very, very best, the top of the line, best that money could buy. And he lived in luxury every day. You see, in one sentence, Jesus describes the rich man. Continually, every day, those last two words are very, very telling. The picture of one is one of limitless wealth, indulgent and luxuriant living. He had all that life could ever offer. He had it all. And as we read the account, he's not said to have committed any particular grave sin. And we'll find soon that he finds himself in hell, in torment, in agony, in anguish. And we'll discover why he finds himself there. It's not just because he's a rich man. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a crime to be rich. For it is God, the Bible says, that gives us the power to gain wealth. It's God who chooses who he's going to make wealthy or not. It's his sovereignty. The issue for this man was that he was self-sufficient. He was self-focused. He lived only for himself and nobody else. He cared not for the things of God. He cared not for the things of others. In that lay his condemnation. He was totally oblivious, totally self-sufficient. All he lived for was his own luxury, his own pleasures. All he lived for was himself. Lazarus, on the other hand, is a startling contrast. In, in, indeed, Lazarus is, is named, and his name means, this is, this is incredible, his name means God is my help. Now, you'd think a guy with that name would live a little bit better life. His life seems to be a contradiction to his name. God is my help. We're told, verse, the next verse, verse 20, at his gate, at the rich man's gate, and the word gate really doesn't translate the, the picture here. The picture is a, a, a tremendous, luxurious entrance to a, a palace, if you will. An incredible mansion this man lived in. And this beggar wasn't just laid, he was literally thrown down at the gate. The Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written is much more picturesque and gives you the sense, gives you the picture that he wasn't just gently laid at this man's gate. It was like a wagon went by and he was pushed off and dropped at the guy's gate to beg. He was covered with sores, and he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Let me tell you what fell from the rich man's table. Typically, in the ancient East, people ate with their hands. They didn't have knives and forks and spoons and, and all the wonderful tableware that we have in our societies today. People today eat with their hands, right? It's kind of more fun, isn't it? Especially when you get chicken. But typically, people ate with their hands in the ancient Near East. And rich people, wealthy households, cleansed their hands with bread. And the rich man would wipe his hands with the bread, and the bread would then be discarded. 
This was what Lazarus was waiting to eat. The discards from this man's table, the bread that he wiped his hands with. This was notorious throughout the ancient Near East. The beggars and the poor people always waited around the entrance to rich people's houses because they knew that when they ate these sumptuous meals that there would be lots and lots of bread left over from the wiping of the hands of the uh, people who lived there and also the guests. Notice something else. The only ministry that comes to this beggar is via dogs. The only kind of ministry is that dogs come and lick his sores. And he doesn't even have the strength to push the dogs away. He's in a pathetic situation, isn't he? And yet his name, God is my help. He wears that like a banner. People say, what's your name? God is my help. Oh, you're a pathetic soul. Doesn't exactly inspire you to believe in God, does it? Much more inspired than the rich man. And so we see this contrast. And we think, if you're just standing there observing, you think, how in the world can God allow this horrible inequity? How can God say, this man, I'm helping this man, and yet this rich man here is enjoying all of his wealth and not helping and caring at all for this beggar? Where is the justice? Do you feel enraged at all when you think about that scene? I do. I do. I think, come on, God. What's the deal here? This is not fair. How many have ever thought God isn't fair? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Aren't we tempted when we see injustice, when we see things happening in this life, in this world we don't understand? We have these nice, neat categories and boxes, and we think, well, God, you should be doing something about this. And our temptation is to wag our finger and point our finger and say, you're not just. Why should I trust you? Look at this guy. He doesn't deserve that. In fact, Abraham will respond and, and even tell us that. Verse 22, we see the scene change. We don't get any answers to our questions of where is the justice. We're told the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Isn't it interesting that it's not mentioned that the beggar was buried? Where do you think the beggar's body was disposed of? Huh? The trash heap outside of Jerusalem. He wasn't even buried, he didn't have a tomb. But it's mentioned that the rich man was buried. He had everything for this life. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So we see a swap in position now. Where does the rich man find himself? In hell. In torment. Where does Lazarus find himself? In paradise. 
next to Abraham. So we see an incredible reversal here. Jesus pulls the curtain of eternity back and gives us a glimpse of what goes on after death. We're going to learn some things about that. We're ushered right into Hades itself. Hades is the place of afterlife. It's the place of departed souls, according to Hebrew thought. And Hades was divided into two compartments. Abraham's bosom, or paradise, and Gehenna. Paradise, or Abraham's bosom, where the uh, Lazarus found himself, was a place of peace, joy, blessing, and reward. Gehenna, on the other hand, was the place of punishment, the place of grief and sorrow. And Gehenna derives its name from the burning dump outside of the city of Jerusalem where the fire never was quenched. Constantly garbage was being burned day and night. Day and night it was constantly burning. And that dumped, the name was Gehenna. And so the Jews picked up that name and described that part of the afterlife as Gehenna where punishment would be meted out for eternity, where the fires would never, ever go out. So Lazarus is found in paradise, the rich man in the fires of Gehenna, or hell. In verse 23, we transition now. If we're watching a play, we transition to the next act, and it's here where we hear the rich man speak out. He sees... Lazarus up there with Abraham. And actually, verse 24, he says, So he called to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Our attention is called to the rich man, and he's in anguish. Would you agree? Suffering? He realizes where he is. He realizes that his condition in the eternal fires is now irrevocable. And he has no power to order underlings to satisfy his every whim and desire as he had when he was alive on this earth. And worse yet, he's able to see Lazarus enjoying the peace and comfort of paradise. He calls out to Abraham, assuming that in some sense this world's values still apply, ordering that Lazarus should be required to come and minister to him. Is he still self-centered? Send that poor man Lazarus down here to minister to me to cool cool me off. I'm hot down here. Old habits die hard, even in hell. People still make assumptions about who they are and their life and their prerogatives and privileges. Pretty substantial stuff when you think about it. This isn't just a story. This is giving us insights into the realities that with, with, which, with which we must all deal. I want you to note Abraham's response in verse 25. Abraham is both gentle and firm at the same time. He addresses this rich man, not in a, in a cruel or mean way, he addresses him as son. He understands his plight, but there's nothing that Abraham can do about it. 
Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, notice the pronouns, in your lifetime, you received your good things. You settled for all your rewards here. You went for everything here. Everything was here for you. But now look at the contrast. Lazarus received what? What does it say? Bad things. Does it say his bad things? There's a conspicuous absence of any kind of pronoun there. It was as if Lazarus was the recipient of things that he did not deserve. He didn't earn. He didn't ask for. In contrast to the rich man who got all of what he wanted and deserved and worked hard for. Tremendous contrast. So here's Lazarus. His whole life was filled with what? Pain and grief and evil. But what's his name? God is my help. Lazarus, in spite of the fact that his life was filled with grief, still hoped in God. He said, in effect, I don't understand why all this is happening to me, but I'm not making an excuse. God is my help. I'm trusting in God. By contrast, the rich man says, I'm trusting in what? My wealth, my ability, my security. He did totally disacknowledge God. Presumably, he was a Hebrew because he acknowledges Abraham as his father. And as such, he has no respect for the rites and the rituals even of his own religious practice. Observes no Sabbath even. For every day he was feasting. Every day he was partying. This man was a world unto himself. And so he says, send Lazarus down here to minister to me. But Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. He says, even if we could send him down, he says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's impossible. See, no one who wants to go from here to you cannot, can go over there and, and no one can cross over from you to us. There's this gulf that separates heaven and hell. No one can pass. It's impossible. All expectation now of relief and or release for the rich man is gone. No hope for any kind of relief from his anguish. The rich man's anguish is sealed forever for all of eternity. But then he remembers he has five brothers. So he appeals once again to Father Abraham, probably the first selfless thought he's ever entertained. And he says, look at this. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now why would he say, let Lazarus go and warn my brothers? Except that the rich man knows that his brothers are unrepentant also. They need warning. 
If you were on the other side, and let's say that you were in hell and you were suffering torment and you could see over back over this way, but you couldn't do anything about it, and you knew that your family was in torment and you really loved them, would you want someone to come and warn them? We do now, don't we? Just as Christians, we understand. We say, oh my gosh, somebody, God send some." Don't we say God send somebody to warn our friends, our relatives? Bring somebody into my father's life, bring somebody into my wife's life, bring somebody into my husband's life. God, bring somebody into this person's life. Talk to them, warn them, shake them up. Imagine being on the other side and being in hell and seeing and experiencing the kind of torment and knowing the rest of your family is headed for the same place. And you cry out, somebody go talk to them. Somebody warn them off. Abraham's answer to him is absolutely incisive. He says, they have the scriptures. Look at this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have the scriptures. Abraham is telling us the Bible is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. God's word calls for obedience, justice, and faithfulness. All you have to do is read it. You can't read this book and come away ignorant of God's call for justice and faithfulness and obedience. You can't come away from reading this book without an understanding that God says, trust me. I live my whole life up until my mid-30s Trusting in myself, my own abilities, my own talents. I was working very hard to amass a financial fortune. I was committed to the prospect of being a millionaire by the time I was 35 years old. I was committed to that prospect. And I was well on my way. I had never in my life read the Bible. No one had ever urged me to read the Bible. I knew there was a God, but he was way over there, and I was busy doing my thing. I just didn't want him to interfere and interrupt my life. Things were really cooking. I can identify with this rich man. And then God interrupted my life. And I remember a couple of occasions prior to his interruption where I had this sense, I had this thought, I had this impression and looking back in retrospect, I can see very clearly twice God was speaking to me and the impression was tantamount to him saying, I want you. Pay attention to me. And I distinctly remember going, yeah, 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 yeah later, but I, I've got things to do. I, I, when I get my first million, then we'll talk. And I figured that God was some benign person in the, out there in space someplace that had too much to be taken care of than to be concerned with me. And I could get by and do my thing. Then he got my attention. I was devastated. I lost everything. He put one of these books in my hand. 
And he put in my heart the desire to read it. I remember the first night I'd ever read the Bible. I laid down on my bed. I opened it up. I didn't even know where to open it up. I opened it up to Book of Romans. I had no idea what Romans was. Some of you who have been with me over the years, you understand now why I have a strong fondness for the Book of Romans, the first book in the Bible I ever read. And I turned the pages after page after page, and it was like, wow, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I couldn't put it down. I read Romans six times that night. I just read it over and over and over. I was amazed with what I was reading. And I finally fell asleep with the Bible on my chest. And I I went to sleep, I remember, so full and excited and enthusiastic. Wow, I had never, ever read and heard these things before in my whole life. The next morning I woke up, the Bible was still on my chest. I picked it up and read it again. And I've read it ever since. I've found that this book is not just a book of rules. I've found that this book is not just another religious book. I've found that this book called the Bible is not irrelevant. It's not just some ancient grouping of sayings irrelevant to life today. I found that this book is alive. It is alive. It is powerful. And it helps me understand the truth and guides my path and gives me wisdom. And I love it. I love it. I love reading it. As I read it this morning... As I just read these passages with you, I marvel at the richness and the depth of the insight and the direction and the perspective that it gives my life. They have the scriptures. They have the scriptures. If they would just search the word, if they would just search the scriptures, they would know, they would see, and they would repent. There has been no person who has ever seriously taken up reading the Bible who has come away unrepentant. Who has come away saying, oh, my life has been wrong. My perspectives have been wrong. Now I'm beginning to understand. That's how I came away from it. Verse 30, look at this. Abraham says they have the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient. Let them search the scriptures. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. But the rich man says, No, but. No, but. No, but. How many parents do we have here? Have you ever heard that phrase? Something similar to it? You're going to be okay. No, but. (laughs) What I provided is sufficient. No, but. People do the same thing today. They say, no, but do something spectacular. Get her, really get my attention. Really entertain me. Really get this riled up. No, no, you have the scriptures. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. No, but. Someone from the dead would go and talk to them. They'll repent. Listen to Abraham's response. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Woo! You mean if a dead relative of mine comes back and stands right in front of me and tells me everything that's gone on, on the other side, I won't be convinced? That's what he says. Is that hard to believe? I don't think it's hard to believe. You know how many people I've talked to since I've been a Christian, since I've been a pastor, about Christ and about salvation, about eternal life and death and all these subjects? Countless numbers of people. Thousands every week. Some I've done face-to-face, one-on-one, explained the whole scene, the whole picture, and had them nodding, go along with it. Yeah, I understand. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I understand. Get right to the point. You say, all right, now, now, do you want to receive Jesus? Nope. <laughs> Why not? I don't believe it. But you were nodding yes all the time. I don't believe it. But you said it made sense, the whole thing. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I don't believe it. If someone even rises from the dead, they won't believe. They won't repent. That's what he says. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. So the curtain goes down, if you will, with that verse in our little scene. We ask ourselves, what does all this mean? What do we do about it? What effect does it have on our life? Jesus has allowed us to see not only what's beyond life, behind death, but he also allows us to see the inseparable link, if you will, between life as we live it now and how we will spend eternity. There is a connection There is a connection. There's five things I think we can learn from this little story. Let me recount these five things for you. If you're following along with your notes, you have a place to write these things in. The first thing that Jesus teaches us is that we will all live forever. Now that may come as a startling surprise to some people. For there are some people who believe that when you die, that's it. You only go around once, you go out of existence, there's nothing, there's no afterlife. That speaks against the very desire built deep down inside of us. Every one of us hungers to live, don't we? How many of us, it's your very favorite thing to be sick. You look forward to going to the hospital. You look forward to having IVs and people cut on you. None of us. That's ludicrous. We laugh. Why? Because it's contrary to our hunger to what? Live. And to live life to its fullest, to its abundance. But if you think about the general context of things, if this is all there is, this is it? This is as good as it gets? Oh, no! What a tragedy! They have beer commercials that say that. It doesn't get any better than this. I've seen those beer commercials. Guys sitting around a campfire, you know, cooking up some old stinky fish, drinking some beer, hanging out with the guys out in the woods. And they say, it doesn't get any better than this. Oh, I want to scream. <laughs> if that's all there is, whoo, well, we are really to be pitied. 
Do you dig it? Can you get behind what I'm saying here? It's ludicrous to think that this is all there is if we just think about it. Jesus tells us that we're all going to live forever. Immortality is not our choice. It is assigned to us. Death doesn't just end our existence. It is the end of our physical existence as we know it, but that intangible part of us, our intellect, our will, our self-consciousness, our emotions, our memory goes on. Those things don't pass away. They go on in that spirit realm. If I'm going to live forever, think about this. If I am going to live forever, that is at the same time an awesome and a frightening thought. Awesome for those who have a hope. Frightening for those who have no hope. It's just, I don't know what's going to happen. Frightening when you think about it. That's why most people don't like to think about death. That's why we're not a a nation of people who deals well with loss. All of our fears, all of our fears have their root in that one ultimate fear of dying. All of our fears have their root in that fear. We're always afraid of loss, of losing, the unknown. But the great unknown is what? Dying. I'm no longer afraid of death. I just don't want to go through dying. (laughs) I know where I'm going. I believe with all my heart. The Bible tells me I'm convinced as convinced can be that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be in eternity. Hallelujah. I just don't want to go through dying. I told the Lord, Lord, when it's my time, just I want to lay my head down on my pillow. I want to wake up in eternity. Can anybody identify? I mean, suffering is not my favorite thing. The question is, Forrest, if I'm going to live for eternity, where am I going to spend eternity? And that leads me to my second principle or the second truth that Jesus teaches us. If I'm going to live forever, he teaches us that there are two distinct realms of life after death. Two distinct realms of life after death. And only two. There's no in-between. Jesus leaves no room for doubt about the reality of heaven or hell after death. He leaves no room for doubt. He teaches over and over and over throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about hell. He leaves no room for doubt. In Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, heaven. It's like heaven's a place. No, no, no. Heaven is a state of mind. No, heaven's a place. You don't just sit there and go, I'm in heaven. You're in dreamland. (laughs) When his disciples come to him and they say, teach us how to pray. And he gives them the model prayer known as the Our Father. Most of us probably know it. The first sentence in the Our Father is addressed to who? Our Father who is in heaven. Heaven. 
talks about heaven like it's a place. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus speaks to his disciples to comfort them. He just told them he's leaving. He's going to, be, he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected and ascend to heaven. And they're going to be left, they think, alone as orphans. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I want to comfort you. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. Where's his father again? Where's his father's house? In heaven. And there are many, what? Rooms there. Jesus is telling them that the ultimate reward, our ultimate reward is going to be with him in heaven. And he says, and I go to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back for you. And I'll come back and get you. And I'll take you so that you can be where I am in heaven. heaven. All right. (laughs) You remember Jesus on the cross? He was on the cross. He had a guy on the left, a guy on the right, right? These guys think alike? No. One guy was crabby and yelling at Jesus and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And the other guy was, we call him the penitent thief. And he was telling the other guy to shut up, you know. He said, this guy in the middle here doesn't deserve what he's getting. We deserve it. We deserve it. So Jesus turns over to this guy and he says, hey, today, guess where we're going to be? Paradise. Where's paradise? Heaven. Can you imagine? How long, Jesus? How much? Well, we're we're going down. (laughs) Ain't going to be long now. We're going to be in heaven. Jesus' teaching about hell is no less vivid. The New Testament is more terrifying than the Old Testament. For the mention of hell and eternal punishment is far clearer and far more predominant in the New Testament than it is in the Old. People say, oh, the Old Testament is so bloody and horrible. Oh, the New Testament is far more terrifying. Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. He speaks of the fire of hell. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 45, he warns about the danger of going to hell. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, Don't be afraid of man who can kill only the body, but fear the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. In Matthew chapter 23, he castigates the Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember, were the religious leaders of the day who had kept the people ignorant of the truth because they were ignorant of the truth. It's like the blind leading the blind. They were the religious hypocrites of the day. They wouldn't tell the people the truth. And Jesus castigates them severely. The whole 23rd chapter is devoted to the seven woes on the Pharisees. And he concludes that passage in verse 33. He says to the Pharisees, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers. Not exactly designed to win him favor with the Pharisees. He says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Jesus' teaching about hell is very, very vivid. You can't come away from reading this book with any kind of consciousness, not clearly seeing that Jesus Christ came to liberate people from the grip of sin and Satan, and death, and hell. 
Hell is the ultimate punishment. Hell is the ultimate reward for ignoring God. And where does it come from? Where does it start? God is not sending people to hell. Let me say that again. Let me correct any misconceptions. God is not sending people to hell. He's not. Why are they going there? Because they have chosen to go there. The Bible clearly says that hell was created not for man. It was created originally for who? The devil and his angels. But because mankind turned from God way back in the Garden of Eden, when God said, trust in me, stay in relationship with me, stay in relationship with me, I'm the source of life, I'm the source of truth. If you turn from me, you turn from a dependent relationship and you start living for yourself, you're going to die. You separate yourself from me. God has never turned his back on humanity. Humanity has turned his back on God. The Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But man is rushing headlong, ignorantly, blindly to hell. The prophet Zechariah says that God wants to pluck us from, from the fire like a brand from the fire to save us. He says, listen to me, pay attention to me, turn to me, repent. Repent is not a bad thing. Repent means stop living to please yourself and start living to please Him. It's the only thing that makes sense. Any parent understands this. They see selfishness in their child, self-centeredness in their child. Their child's growing up more and more and more selfish. The parent says, stop, stop, turn around, listen to me, pay attention. Your life is headed for destruction. Are you with me? And God says the same thing to mankind. He says, stop. Turn around. If you saw somebody driving off a cliff, they didn't know there was a cliff there. But you were close enough and you could yell at them with a bullhorn. You could wave flags. You could hopefully get their attention. Would you try to get their attention and stop them? Sure. Hell. Hell. Eternal, everlasting, forever separation from God and his love and his forgiveness. From his grace. The fact that we have sunshine is an expression of his grace. The fact that he causes rain to come down and water the ground is an expression of his grace. Hell is separation from all of that. Forever no light. Forever no one to talk to. Forever eternal desperation. In a group this size, with as many people as there are in this auditorium this morning, I would hazard to say that there are probably some people who have been in such deep turmoil and personal pain. I'm not talking about physical pain. I'm talking about that intangible personal pain, that hopeless sense about your life, ultimate rejection you felt in every quarter, no hope that you have considered suicide. The ultimate act of selfishness. The only way that you have irrationally figured out that you could extinguish the pain of living in this life, it's too painful. It's too horrible. There's no hope. Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety overwhelms you. There are some people in this room this morning who understand exactly what I'm talking about. Others, you don't even have a clue. 
But if you can possibly imagine that kind of deep despair, desolation, and magnify it, multiply it by a factor of infinity, you have hell and you can never extinguish the pain. You can't kill yourself. You can't stop it. It's forever and ever and ever. That's what hell is. Hell is not people sitting around drinking beer at a bar in hell. It's not some caricature that the cartoonists give us. Hell is the worst thing imaginable and it was created for the devil and his angels and yet man is rushing headlong there and God is trying to save him. You can't not read this book and come away with a clear understanding God's trying to save people from that kind of end. Somebody say amen. amen. In John chapter 3 verse 16 God himself says he so loves his creation. He so loves the world that he gave his most precious possession, his only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have life everlasting. Why did he give Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die? Because payment must be made. Justice must be served. God's laws have been violated, and unless justice has been served, there is no justice. And the only one that can fulfill God's demand for perfect justice perfectly is a perfect victim. The Bible says that all of our sins, all of our sins were laid on him. All of our guilt was laid on him. And his righteousness was laid on us, the, on us, those who would receive it. There's a swap there. Jesus became the guilty party that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And then he died. He satisfied God's demand for justice. It's a done deal. Everybody now can take advantage. Everybody can receive forgiveness. Everybody can receive eternal life. Everybody can be in heaven. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for every person, for every sin ever committed, for every life that's ever gone astray. But it is efficient for only those who would trust and believe. I can say all day long to you, I have a present for you, I have a present for you, it's free, there's no strings attached, just take it, just believe, just trust me. But if you never take it, can you benefit by the gift I want to give you? Can't. God's saying, I got a gift for you. I want to save you, I love you. Nope. Nope. Nope, I'm happy the way I am. I'm happy miserable. I'm happy convinced I'm going to hell. That's what people are saying. The third truth we learn, and this is key, this is key, this is central to these five truths. What we believe and what we do about what we believe determines our eternal destiny. What do I believe? And is my life congruent with what I believe? I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he wants to save me. And if I believe in him, he says, you trust me and obey me and do what, I'm, what I tell you to do, and I'll enable you to do it, then I better do it, huh? The Bible says that faith without works is dead. How many understand the principle of being a hypocrite? 
A hypocrite says one thing and does another, does the opposite. We hate hypocrites, but yet all of us are hypocritical to some degree, aren't we? We don't always do everything that we know to do, even Christians, amazing. And so we see, it's what, what do I believe? And is my life consistent with what I believe? If you don't believe there's a God, then you ought to live consistently with the fact that there's no God. Hence, no order. Hence, no reason to keep the law. Hence, just live for yourself. Do whatever you want, when you want. Because why? There's no punishment. There's no reason for any kind of order if there's no God, no God of order. Am I making sense? The rich man did not go to hell because he was a rich man. He went to hell because he was self-centered, self-sufficient, ignored God, and ignored God's will, quite plainly. It wasn't that he did any particular sin that we can see. It was just the overall tenor of his life. He was self-focused. Why did Lazarus go to heaven? Because he was a good man? No, because he trusted God. He hoped in God. He had faith in God. God is my help. His name reflected his attitude, and we see him in heaven. Not that he did good stuff. I remember thinking that I would go to heaven when I died. I'd go to heaven because I was a good person. I remember when, when uh, years ago, back in the uh, early 70s, mid-70s, all the hippies around here started getting saved, started becoming Christians. Long hair, dirty people, barefoot, dirty clothes, smelly, started getting saved, started getting Jesus, started getting religion. I grew up in this area, I've lived in this community all my life, and I remember I was part of the Strand culture. You know, you ride your bike down there, you walk, you'd be cool, play volleyball and all that stuff. And these hippies would accost you with their Bibles. They say, are you saved? I said, get out of here. Leave me alone. Are you born again? Get out of here. Leave me alone. One guy cornered me. I'll never forget this. He cornered me. And he just, I couldn't get away from him. And he was bearing in on me with his big old black Bible. He was unrelenting. And finally I said, I'm a good person. Anybody ever hear that before? Anybody ever say it before? <laughs> I'm a good person. I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. He said, you're a sinner. I said, I'm a good person. We went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> See, I thought, I thought truly that I was a good person. Now, I did some bad things, and I was willing to admit that, but I thought I did more good than I did bad. And everybody knows that God has a sense of humor. Everybody knows that God grades on the curve. Why? Because everybody else grades on the curve, don't we? We say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. Don't we say that to each other when we're offended by one another? Sure. We don't, we don't give genuine forgiveness, we just whitewash things. And so we project that onto God. We say, well, I grade on the curve, certainly God grades on the curve. I do more good than bad, therefore all the good I do will outweigh the little bit of bad I do, and when I die, I'll get into heaven, if there is a heaven. Simple, simple reasoning. But this guy would say no. He would say no. He said, no way, no way, no way. You are a sinner. You're going to hell. I said, why, why? He says, because you've got to be perfect. I said, what? <laughs> he said, you've got to have A's across the board. All Ten Commandments. Every single day of your whole life. I said, that's impossible. He said, exactly why you need Jesus. <laughs> I went, oh, oh, oh. You see, I was still yet too prideful to believe it. I walked away, but I never forgot what he said. He got to me. Thank God. 
You see, long before this rich man would experience hell, hell was a confirmed reality in his life because of the separation in his life. He ignored God. He ignored what God said. Hell, long before he died, was his destination. He was so completely centered on himself and his possessions, probably he never even saw Lazarus at his gate. Now, I'm not saying that for this rich man, if he'd have fed Lazarus, he'd have gone to heaven. I'm not saying that just doing good things gets us to heaven. Faith without works is as dead as works without faith. People say, I'm a good person. So what? Why do you do what you do? Well, I don't have to believe in your God. I'm a good person. I do good works. I give money to the poor. I help people out. I, I go down to the mission on once a month. So what? Why do you do it? Well, because it's nice. It helps. It makes me feel good. I wear ribbons. So what? I care. So what? Why do you care? You've got to have a reason. You've got to have a foundation. You've got to have a basis for doing whatever good you do. And that basis is found only in the very character and nature of God. If you don't believe in the one true living God, you have no basis for doing anything good and right. And even though you do them, they're just dead works. They don't amount to anything. Beloved, belief in Jesus Christ... As Savior and Lord, understand, belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is the basis of eternal life. That's the basis. There is no other. There is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. The name Jesus. The acid test of our faith, think about this. The acid test of our faith is in our relationships. It's in our relationships. The rich man died out of relationship with God. He died out of relationship with himself. He had, his morality was, rel- was, was relative. Only what would suit his purposes. Whatever, whatever fit his, his agenda. He died out of relationship with God. He died out of relationship with himself. And as a result, he died out of relationship with who? Lazarus and anybody else. He died the ultimate consumer. You ever see the bumper sticker? Who who dies with the most toys loses. There's a philosophy, hedonistic philosophy that says consume, consume, consume. Get it all. This guy had it all. But it was a horrible distraction for him. He was just a consumer. The fourth truth, Jesus exposes the impotence of death. He exposes for us the impotence of death. Death is absolutely incapable of destroying the inner life. It does not destroy our consciousness, our memory, or our self-identity. We see both Lazarus and the rich man in paradise and hell immediately after death. The rich man knew who he was. The rich man had memory of his family. He was anguishing. He could feel 
the reality of where he was, remembering who he was and what he had failed to do. There was no escape. And he experienced regret and remorse. You know, I think the most disturbing description of hell imaginable is to be in the flames of remorse and self-recrimination forever and ever and ever. Who of us have not experienced in this life the might-have-beens, the what-ifs, the if-onlys, missed opportunities, and for all eternity, imagine, all eternity, no hope forever, being consciously aware that there was a time back in space, time, and history when there was something you could have done. People came to you. They told you. They looked you in the face. You just shined them on. And now in eternity, lost forever, you go, oh, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I pay attention forever and ever and ever kicking yourself? I mean, the anguish of eternal punishment is bad enough. But you add to it the self-recriminations that you could have done something about it if you had just listened and said, okay, okay. In this life, we look at those situations, at least we have some hope that there's something we can do or say that maybe we can better the situation, right? But death dashes that hope forever. Nothing we can do. The rich man neglected, neglected all that he knew with respect to obedience and trust in God. What he had failed to do was caused by the person he had become. He was a separated person. And that person he'd become, he would live with forever and ever and ever with all of his regrets. And the final thing that the parable teaches us, that this story teaches us, is that death is final. Death is final. And that there can be no communication with those on this side of the grave. Once we die, we're over there, and we're over there forever. There's no communicating back. The most dreadful experience of hell must be the desire to warn our loved ones. And though our screams be loud... They will not be heard if we're on that side. There are lots of people who claim to have some kind of mysterious manifestation to have had communications from the dead via their dreams or some medium. And again, I would submit to you that these are not true, that these are deceptions, because the Bible says there is no communication back from the dead. It says no one can come over. They have the scriptures. They've got all they need. Let them search God's word. There's only one voice back from the dead. There's only one voice back from the dead, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He alone has come back, and he speaks with undeniable and irresistible clarity. I quote from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Where Jesus himself says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. 
And he says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I hold the keys. Nobody else. Come to me. I'll release you. I'll give you life. You see, Jesus is that one voice that came back. Abraham said, even if someone comes back, they won't listen, they won't repent. His words were both true and false at the same time. For when Jesus came back, some people did listen, didn't they? But who were they? They were the ones who were already reading and hoping in the scriptures. But most people did not listen. Most people ignored Jesus' claims, and today the same thing is true. Some will listen. Most people will still ignore. To that one lone voice that has come back from eternity. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he concludes and he says, do you believe this? He puts the question to us. And it is indeed an eternal question, a question that must be answered. Do you believe this? Everything now and forever hangs on our response, depends on our response to that question. Do you believe this? Beloved, you cannot afford to put off a decision to trust in Jesus. How do I know Jesus is the one? Read the book. Read the book. You come away convinced it's conclusive. Jesus is the one. He is the lone voice from the dead. And he is our basis of eternal hope. And we find that in our response to his question, do you believe? Death is certain. The question is, how do we deal with it? And where are we going to be afterwards? Amen. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. I thank you for your working in my life. And I thank you for the hope that you've given me. I thank you that you've opened my eyes and shown me clearly what is true. I thank you that I have a confidence that after I die, that I'll not perish in the fires of hell and eternal punishment, for Jesus has already taken all my punishment that I have the hope now of eternal life. I pray, Father, for each person here this morning within the uh, earshot of my voice, that you would take my words and cause them to penetrate deeply into every heart and mind. Lord, that you would turn hearts towards you, those especially who, Father, have not believed, who resisted for one reason or another. Turn their hearts towards you, Lord. Help them open their eyes, their ears, Give them the ability and the, the desire to know you. Lord, strengthen us all in our faith and our confidence in you and our, in our walk with you, that we can indeed be a light to those around us and our families, our friends, that they would believe our testimony because our testimony is consistent with our life. They see profound and powerful changes in our life that we could not bring about, but that only you could do. They see a peace and a joy in our life that only you could bring. Lord, help us to be your light 
in a dark and fallen and broken world. We love you this morning, and we give you thanks for today. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment more.